Alright everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bible Beginning to End. As always, I am so happy that you are here and joining me today as we read through the scriptures together and allow the Holy Spirit to speak through God's words just as they are written and as they are presented to us. As always, I'll be asking some questions along the way just to get your mind thinking and really critically looking at the scriptures, but I won't be offering a lot, if any, commentary along the way. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation so you can read along in your Bible or click the link in the description or show notes that will take you to the online versions of today's scriptures. Last week, we finished up Genesis. And all of the Israelites were in Egypt. God had taken them to Egypt. We know that there's got to be a reason that God put all of the Israelites in Egypt. Exodus is going to pick up right there with all of God's people in Egypt. And it is really a book about God's relationship with his followers, with his believers. And what that looked like before Jesus came and died on the cross. You might have some background knowledge about Exodus. It could be from church. It could be from watching the Prince of Egypt growing up. You may have no background knowledge of Exodus, but that's okay because we're going to read through it together and let the words speak for themselves. We're going to meet some famous characters along the way like Moses and Pharaoh and hear some possibly familiar stories. But as always, let's just look at this with fresh eyes and see what God is saying through his word today. Exodus 1. The Israelites in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. So let's pause here because the Israelites are descendants of whom? Jacob. And Jacob is a descendant of whom? If you go back far enough, Abraham. Remind yourself of the covenant God made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants time and time again in Genesis. He said that your descendants will be numerous. And right here, are we seeing that played out? Are we seeing that covenant come true in the fact that the Israelites have multiplied so greatly they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Verse 8. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. Pause there and remind yourself, what, what did Joseph do during Genesis? What are they referring to right here? If you need to go back and look, that's okay. Look it up and Read again and remind yourself what kind of relationship Joseph had with the Pharaoh at the time he was alive. 
Verse 9, he said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in their demands. So pause here and let's make a prediction. How do you think this is going to turn out for the Israelites? Will God deliver them from this slavery? Verse 15. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Sifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. I want to pause there real quick too and just make a note that this Pharaoh is not the same Pharaoh who was king of Egypt when Joseph was alive. Pharaoh is a general term that is used for all the kings of Egypt. I also want you to pause here and ask yourself, why is Pharaoh giving this specific order? Why is he letting the girls live and wanting them to kill the newborn boys? And then what does it say about the midwives? Why did they refuse to obey the king's orders? What does that say about God's place in the society? Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. That's the end of... Exodus 1, and I want you to pause and reflect on God's actions during this time. How is God working? Think about the midwives situation here. The king of Egypt is asking them to do something, but who do they fear more than the king of Egypt? What does this show us about where our true authority comes from? And how does God react when we stand up for what is right? Exodus 2, the birth of Moses. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. 
The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this boy and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. So pause here and think about what's going on. We have this horrific decree from Pharaoh to kill every newborn Hebrew baby boy. Moses' mother does everything she can to protect her son. And where does God place Moses? Do we think that God is about to use Moses for something great? Compare Moses' story to Joseph's story. Joseph was sold into slavery, but ended up being second in command to Pharaoh ruling over all of Egypt. Moses' story is not going to be the same, but we also have someone in a terrible situation ending up as close to Pharaoh as possible. So let's see what happens. In the next section, Moses escapes to Midian. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Let's pause there and ask ourselves, what does this situation show us about Moses? What does it show us about his heart? He clearly cares for people and can empathize with them, probably because he's a Hebrew himself. But did he handle this situation in the right way? Is he waiting on God or is he taking matters into his own hands? Verse 13, the next day when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, Everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flock. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked, Why are you back so soon today? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. And where is he? their father asked. 
Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation and he settled there with them. In time, Rule gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. Later, she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Pause here at the end of chapter 2 and ask yourself what this section says about God. Does God hear us? Does God listen to us? Does God have a plan? Does God have timing? Is God faithful to his people? Exodus 3 Moses and the Burning Bush One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Pause here and ask yourself, how does Moses' reaction speak to the desire we have for God? That there's just something about him that we, we can't stay away from. It draws us in. Verse 4. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? I want you to pause here before we listen to God's response. I always love this moment because many of us knows what Moses is destined to do. But in this moment, he's looking at himself, Moses, the man. When Moses responds this way and protests and says, I can't do this, why do you think that is? 
Is he considering the fact that God will be with him? Or is he thinking about Moses, the person himself alone? I can't do this on my own. Let's hear what God says to Moses, verse 12. God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So let's pause and think about God's response. Moses protests and says, I'm not worthy of this. And what does God say back? I'll be with you. Does God even think twice that Moses can do this? Does God have faith in Moses, the man, or does God have faith in himself working through Moses? And then I want you to think about the names God gives for himself. I am who I am. I am. Yahweh. Yahweh, which is translated, it says, most likely the form of of the Hebrew verb to be. So it could mean he causes to be, or he who is, or I am. What do you think about those names? What do they mean? What do they show about God? God's names often reveal a characteristic of God. What does this name, I am who I am, tell us about God? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Verse 16. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me, I have been watching closely and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go and I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go, so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. So pause here at the end of chapter 3 and ask yourself, does God know what's going to happen? 
How is he planning this entire rescue and exodus from Egypt? How does this plan that he's making with Moses show his provision? He's making this plan to rescue his people from Egypt, and he has every step laid out. Do you think that this will be an easy task for Moses? Or do you think there will be a lot of struggle and pushback from the leaders of Egypt? Exodus 4, Signs of the Lord's Power But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? Let's pause here and ask ourselves, you know, Moses is protesting time and time again. This might be a good time for personal reflection because I know times in my life when I've felt God asking me to do something and I'm like, I I can't do that or I can't do it that way or I'm too young or I'm too, you know, like all these things that we say. But what is that showing about Moses? What is that showing about us when we do that? Who are we putting our faith in? And who should we be putting our faith in? Verse 2, Then the Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Then the Lord told him, Reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. Then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out again, his hand was white as snow with a severe skin disease. Now put your hand back into your cloak, the Lord said. So Moses put his hand back in, and when he took it out again, it was as healthy as the rest of his body. The Lord said to Moses, If they do not believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, they will be convinced by the second sign. And if they don't believe you or listen to you even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile River and pour it out on the dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. Pause here and again do some self-reflection. I think it's so interesting and inspiring that what Moses will come to do is to lead and speak for the Israelites. That's the very thing he sees as his weakness. Can God use our weaknesses? Can God turn our weaknesses into strength? Verse 13, but Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said. What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well. And look, he is on his way to meet you now. He will be delighted to see you. Talk to him and put the words in his mouth. 
I will be with both of you as you speak, and I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. He will be your mouthpiece, and you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. And take your shepherd's staff with you, and use it to perform the miraculous signs I have shown you. So let's pause here. Who was God's first choice to speak? And then what did Moses do? He continued saying, Lord, please, send somebody else. It can't be me. I can't do this. Does God just give up on his plan? Does God just give up and say, well, Moses doesn't want to do this, so I guess I won't save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? Or does the Lord find another way? Sometimes I worry in my own life that, you know, if I take the wrong turn or walk down the wrong path, that God will just give up and his will will not be done. But God finds a way. Sometimes he uses those wrong turns and wrong paths to get us back to where we need to go. But sometimes he chooses someone else because we weren't willing to step up, which is a little scary. Now, of course, in this instance, he's using Moses. He's just finding another way to do it. But what does this section show us about trusting God and how important that is? The next section is Moses returns to Egypt. So Moses went back home to Jethro, his father-in-law. Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt, Moses said. I don't even know if they are still alive. Go in peace, Jethro replied. Before Moses left Midian, the Lord said to him, Return to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you have died. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand he carried the staff of God. And the Lord told Moses, When you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart, so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go, so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. Pause here because we have an interesting phrase. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I really want you to reflect on that and ask yourself why God is doing this. It might be a difficult question to answer, but sometimes you have to spend time in prayer and reading and researching to really understand the nuances of scripture. So I would encourage you to reflect on what we know about Pharaoh, what we know about what he's done in the past and what he's going to do, and also reflect on what we know about God, his omnipotence, his power, his faithfulness. And then reflect on why he might be hardening Pharaoh's heart. Verse 24. On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. Pause here at this very interesting encounter. What do we know about circumcision? It was a part of the covenant God had made with his people. It was the way that they marked themselves as people of God. 
So why might it be important that Moses' sons were circumcised? And Moses' wife immediately took action. So what does that suggest? Does that suggest that they knew they should have done this and disobeyed? Does that show that Moses and his wife might have had a conversation about this when their son was born and for some reason decided not to circumcise their son? Sometimes we fear being confronted because we know the exact thing we're supposed to be doing. That could be what's going on in this situation. Verse 27. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go out into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron went and met Moses at the mountain of God, and he embraced him. Moses then told Aaron everything the Lord had commanded him to say, and he told him about the miraculous signs the Lord had commanded him to perform. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So pause here at the end of chapter 4 and just reflect on the Israelites' initial reaction. What did they do? How did they show respect for God? Exodus 5. Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so? retorted Pharaoh. And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us they declared, so let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with the plague or with the sword. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. So pause here and ask yourself, so far is everything playing out just as God said it would? Are we seeing God's predictions and God's statements come true? The next section is making bricks without straw. That same day, Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves. But still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. So let's pause here and ask ourselves, how is Pharaoh's reaction showing us who he is? What is his character? Verse 10. So the slave drivers and foremen went out and told the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not provide any more straw for you. Go and get it yourselves. Find it wherever you can, but you must produce just as many bricks as before. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt in search of stubble to use as straw. Meanwhile, the Egyptian slave drivers continued to push hard. Meet your daily quota of bricks just as you did when we provided you with straw, they demanded. 
Then they whipped the Israelite foreman they had put in charge of the work crews. Why haven't you met your quotas, either yesterday or today, they demanded. So the Israelite foreman went to Pharaoh and pleaded with him, Please don't treat your servants like this, they begged. We are given no straw, but the slave drivers still demand, Make bricks. We are being beaten, but it isn't our fault. Your own people are to blame. But Pharaoh shouted, You're just lazy, lazy. That's why you're saying, Let us go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still produce the full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman could see that they were in serious trouble when they were told, You must not reduce the number of bricks you make each day. As they left Pharaoh's court, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who were waiting outside for them. The foreman said to them, May the Lord judge and punish you for making a stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword into their hands, an excuse to kill us. Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done nothing to rescue them. So that is a good kind of cliffhanger to leave us on for next week, where we'll pick up in Exodus 6. So far, things are getting worse for the Israelites. But we know who God is. We've seen him work many times in many different ways throughout Scripture. Do we think that God has a perfect plan and a perfect timing in store for his people? Will God keep his promise? Will the Israelites be rescued from slavery? These are all things that I want you guys to think about and predict before next time when we jump in to Exodus 6 and see how God keeps his promises. Thank you so much for listening. Like I always say, I hope you get something out of it, not from me, but just from God's word itself, just as it is presented. If you want to reach out or have any suggestions for the show, you can always email me at BibleBeginningToEnd at gmail.com. That email address is in the show notes or the description of the video. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you in the next one. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End. I'm so glad that you're here, where we are going to be reading through the scriptures, letting God's word speak for itself as the Holy Spirit leads. As always, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so grab your Bible and read along, or click the link in the show notes, which will take you to today's scripture. We are in Exodus now. Last time, we read through Exodus 1 through 5, where we met Moses and learned that God's people, the Israelites, were being enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. Let's quickly remind ourselves where we left off last time, because at the end of chapter 5, it left us with a bit of a cliffhanger. In the final verse, Moses says, Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done nothing to rescue them. And I said last time, is God going to rescue his people? What is going to happen in chapter 6? 
So make your predictions and then we are going to just jump in to Exodus 6, which is titled Promises of Deliverance. We are picking up right from where Moses spoke and now it is the Lord's turn to speak. Then the Lord told Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them, and I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. So pause and reflect on the words God says to Moses. What is he reminding Moses of? What name is he giving to Moses? And look up the significance of that name. Think about the covenants he's referring to. Has God been keeping these covenants? Do we have any reason to think that God might not uphold these promises he's making to the Israelites and to Moses? Verse 9. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. So pause and put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. Why do you think, I mean, it kind of goes into it, but why do you think they're having trouble believing what Moses says? If you were in their situation, would you struggle to believe that there was a light at the end of the tunnel? Verse 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. But Lord, Moses objected, My own people won't listen to me anymore. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? I am such a clumsy speaker. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them orders for the Israelites and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. So pause there and think back to when God first called on Moses. Compare these two reactions. Here we have Moses saying that he can't do what the Lord is asking him to do. That he's a clumsy speaker. Where have we heard this before? Do you think that the Lord is going to use Moses anyway? Why do you think Moses has such a hard time believing that he can do what the Lord is asking him to do? The next section is the ancestors of Moses and Aaron. These are the ancestors of some of the clans of Israel. The sons of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, were Hanuk, 
Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Their descendants became the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal. Shal's mother was a Canaanite woman. Their descendants became the clans of Simeon. These are the descendants of Levi, as listed in their family records. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived to be 137 years old. The descendants of Gershon included Libni and Shemai, each of whom became the ancestor of a clan. The descendants of Kohath included Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived to be 133 years old. The descendants of Merari included Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites, as listed in their family records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochbed, and she gave birth to his sons, Aaron and Moses. Amram lived to be 137 years old. The sons of Zar were Korah, Nephig, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, and sister of Nashan. And she gave birth to his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. Their descendants became the clans of Korah. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she gave birth to his son Phinehas. These are the ancestors of the Levite families listed according to their clans. The Aaron and Moses named in this list are the same ones to whom the Lord said, Lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt like an army. It was Moses and Aaron who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. When the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I am telling you. But Moses argued with the Lord, saying, I can't do it. I'm such a clumsy speaker. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? So that's the end of chapter 6, and here we are going to see what happens as Moses and Aaron start approaching Pharaoh. You can make some predictions. Do you think it's going to be a simple task? Do you think it's going to be as easy as Moses and Aaron walking up to Pharaoh and saying, let God's people go? Or do you think Pharaoh will need some convincing? Exodus 7. Aaron's staff becomes a serpent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pay close attention to this. I will make you seem like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Tell Aaron everything I commanded you, and Aaron must command Pharaoh to let the people of Israel leave his country. But I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn, so I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Even then Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so I will bring down my fist on Egypt. Then I will rescue my forces, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Again we have that interesting phrase of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or here it says, I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn. Why do you think he does this? Why do you think God is having to show his power throughout the land of Egypt? 
Think back to how the Israelites initially responded when Moses spoke to them. Did they believe what Moses was saying and trust in the Lord? Or did they have little faith in the Lord? And reflect on what you know of Pharaoh and his character and how he will react. And then think about what you know of God. Compared to God, we know a very small fraction of what goes on, but God sees the entire picture. Do we need to trust God that he knows what's going on and he knows what's best? Verse 6, So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they made their demands to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh will demand, show me a miracle. When he does this, say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. Pause right here because the Lord is constantly telling Moses what's going to happen. How does God know what's going to happen? And is it reassuring that God knows what's going to happen? How does that help us more easily put our trust in God? Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did what the Lord had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called in his own wise men and sorcerers and these Egyptian magicians did the same thing with their magic. They threw down their staffs, which also became serpents. But then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He still refused to listen just as the Lord had predicted. The next section is a plague of blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn and he still refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes down to the river, stand on the bank of the Nile, and meet him there. Be sure to take along the staff that turned into a snake. Then announce to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, Let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. Until now you have refused to listen to him. So this is what the Lord says. I will show you that I am the Lord. Look, I will strike the water of the Nile with this staff in my hand and the water will turn to blood. The fish in it will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink any water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and raise your hand over the waters of Egypt, all its rivers, canals, ponds, and all the reservoirs. Turn all the water to blood. Everywhere in Egypt the water will turn to blood, even the water stored in wooden bowls and stone pots. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. As Pharaoh and all the officials watched, Aaron raised his staff and struck the water of the Nile. Suddenly, the whole river turned to blood. The fish in the river died, and the water became so foul that the Egyptians couldn't drink it. There was blood everywhere throughout the land of Egypt. But again, the magicians of Egypt used their magic 
and they too turned water into blood. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He refused to listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had predicted. Pharaoh returned to his palace and put the whole thing out of his mind. Then all the Egyptians dug along the river bank to find drinking water, for they couldn't drink the water from the Nile. Seven days passed from the time the Lord struck the Nile. So that's the end of chapter 7, but the beginning of the famous plagues in Exodus. Why do you think God is sending these plagues to the Egyptians? If you want, do a little research on the Egyptians of this time and who they worshipped. Did they worship many gods or one god? If they worshipped many gods and they thought that these many gods were life-giving and providers of water and food and other necessary resources, and then God comes in, the one true God, comes in and takes those resources away. How does that force the Egyptians to fix their eyes on the one true God instead of their many gods? And then as we jump into chapter 8, we keep seeing Pharaoh's heart remain stubborn. Make some predictions. What do you think it's going to take for Pharaoh to let God's people go? Do you think the fact that the magicians are able to duplicate some of these miracles makes a difference in Pharaoh's mind? Exodus 8, A Plague of Frogs Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh and announce to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs across your entire land. The Nile River will swarm with frogs. They will come up out of the river and into your palace, even into your bedroom and onto your bed. They will enter the houses of your officials and your people. They will even jump into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Frogs will jump on you, your people, and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, raise the staff in your hand over all the rivers, canals, and ponds of Egypt, and bring up frogs over all the land. So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. But the magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. They too caused frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and begged, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. I will let your people go so they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. So pause here. How is Pharaoh's reaction different in this verse? Is he starting to see who holds the real power? Verse 9. You set the time, Moses replied. Tell me when you want me to pray for you, your officials, and your people. Then you and your houses will be rid of the frogs. They will remain only in the Nile River. Do it tomorrow, Pharaoh said. All right, Moses replied. It will be as you have said. Then you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile River. So pause here and make a prediction. Do you think Pharaoh is going to keep his word? Verse 12. So Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's palace, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had inflicted on Pharaoh. 
And the Lord did just what Moses had predicted. The frogs in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields all died. The Egyptians piled them into great heaps, and a terrible stench filled the land. But when Pharaoh saw that relief had come, he became stubborn. He refused to listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had predicted. So pause there and think about Pharaoh's intentions. Did he care about letting God's people go, or did he just want to take care of the frog situation? The next section is a plague of gnats. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. The dust will turn into swarms of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed. And the gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. So pause and ask yourself, what's it going to take for Pharaoh? Were his magicians able to duplicate this plague? How did the magicians respond to this plague? So what is taking Pharaoh so long to recognize the one true God? And there might even be some time for personal reflection in this section. See what God is saying to you because sometimes God speaks to us over and over and over again the same things, but we remain stubborn. And sometimes I have to ask myself, when will I finally surrender? The next section is a plague of flies. Then the Lord told Moses, get up early in the morning and stand in Pharaoh's way as he goes down to the river. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse, then I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials, your people, and all the houses. The Egyptians' homes will be filled with flies, and the ground will be covered with them. But this time I will spare the region of Goshen, where my people live. No flies will be found there. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and that I am present even in the heart of your land. I will make a clear distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will happen tomorrow. And the Lord did just as he had said. A thick swarm of flies filled Pharaoh's palace and the house of his officials. The whole land of Egypt was thrown into chaos by the flies. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron. All right, go ahead and offer sacrifices to your God, he said. But do it here in this land. So pause right there. Does Pharaoh understand what's going on? What are his motivations? Do you think he's really understanding that God is the one true God? Verse 26. But Moses replied, that wouldn't be right. The Egyptians detest the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord our God. Look, if we offer our sacrifices here where the Egyptians can see us, they will stone us. 
We must take a three-day trip into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, just as he has commanded us. All right, go ahead, Pharaoh replied. I will let you go into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God, but don't go too far away. Now hurry and pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the swarms of flies will disappear from you, and your officials, and all your people. But I am warning you, Pharaoh, don't lie to us again and refuse to let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses left Pharaoh's palace and pleaded with the Lord to remove all the flies. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and caused the swarms of flies to disappear from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. Not a single fly remained. But Pharaoh again became stubborn and refused to let the people go. So pause here at the end of chapter 8 and just reflect on Pharaoh, the character. Are you frustrated with him? Are you wondering to yourself, what is taking him so long? He's been given every opportunity to do the right thing and every time he refuses. And then what about Moses? Is Moses being persistent? Is Moses following every order God has given him faithfully? How much longer will it be until Pharaoh lets God's people go? And what does this teach us about persistence? Chapter 9, A Plague Against Livestock Go back to Pharaoh, the Lord commanded Moses. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you continue to hold them and refuse to let them go, the hand of the Lord will strike all your livestock, your horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, and goats with a deadly plague. But the Lord will again make a distinction between the livestock of the Israelites and that of the Egyptians. Not a single one of Israel's animals will die. The Lord has already set the time for the plague to begin. He has declared that he will strike the land tomorrow. So pause there and make a distinction between these last couple of plagues. Who is affected by these last couple of plagues? And then who is God protecting from these last couple of plagues? Why is that significant? And how is God using that to try and show Pharaoh that he is the one true God? Verse 6, And the Lord did just as he had said. The next morning all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but the Israelites didn't lose a single animal. Pharaoh sent his officials to investigate, and they discovered that the Israelites had not lost a single animal. But even so, Pharaoh's heart remained stubborn, and he still refused to let the people go. A Plague of Festering Boils Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a brick kiln and have Moses toss it into the air while Pharaoh watches. The ashes will spread like fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, causing festering boils to break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a brick kiln and went and stood before Pharaoh. As Pharaoh watched, Moses threw the soot into the air and boils broke out on people and animals alike. Even the magicians were unable to stand before Moses because the boils had broken out on them and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and just as the Lord had predicted to Moses, Pharaoh refused to listen. 
So pause here and ask yourself, has God given Pharaoh plenty of chances before this? Is Pharaoh too far gone to listen to the Lord? Reflect on Pharaoh's character as we've done before. What do we know about him? How might this story have been different if Pharaoh surrendered to God a long time ago when he was given chance after chance after chance? This could be a good time for personal reflection because sometimes you're seeking God or you're seeking answers, but at some point it's a matter of stepping out in faith and trusting that God will carry you and protect you. The next section is a plague of hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you don't, I will send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. By now I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. But I have spared you for a purpose to show you my power, and to spread my fame throughout the earth. But you still lord it over my people and refuse to let them go. So tomorrow at this time I will send a hailstorm more devastating than any in all the history of Egypt. Quick, order your livestock and servants to come in from the fields to find shelter. Any person or animal left outside will die when the hail falls. Some of Pharaoh's officials were afraid because of what the Lord had said. They quickly brought their servants and livestock in from the fields, but those who paid no attention to the word of the Lord left theirs out in the open. Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand toward the sky so hail may fall on the people, the livestock, and all the plants throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses lifted his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed toward the earth. The Lord sent a tremendous hailstorm against all the land of Egypt. Never in all the history of Egypt had there been a storm like that, with such devastating hail and continuous lightning. It left all of Egypt in ruins. The hail struck down everything in the open field, people, animals, and plants alike. Even the trees were destroyed. The only place without hail was the region of Goshen, where the people of Israel lived. Then Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he confessed. So pause right there before we finish this verse. Already, how is this meeting with Pharaoh different than the previous ones? The rest of verse 27. The Lord is the righteous one and my people and I are wrong. Please beg the Lord to end this terrifying thunder and hail. We've had enough. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. So pause there because it started off differently, but how did it end? Did it end the same way Pharaoh has ended all his previous meetings with Moses? Do you think Pharaoh has finally changed his mind or do you think there are more plagues to come? Verse 29. All right, Moses replied, as soon as I leave the city, I will lift my hands and pray to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail will stop and you will know that the earth belongs to the Lord. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. 
All the flax and barley were ruined by the hail, because the barley had formed heads and the flax was budding. But the wheat and the emmer wheat were spared, because they had not yet sprouted from the ground. So Moses left Pharaoh's court and went out of the city. When he lifted his hands to the Lord, the thunder and hail stopped and the downpour ceased. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had stopped, he and his officials sinned again. And Pharaoh again became stubborn. Because his heart was hard, Pharaoh refused to let the people leave, just as the Lord had predicted through Moses. Okay, so let's pause here at the end of chapter 9. I want you to reflect on Pharaoh again, of course, a very interesting character in these chapters. How is he treating God? You might even compare Pharaoh's view of God to that of a genie. Something bad happens. Pharaoh wishes that it would stop. Moses prays to the Lord. The Lord ends the plague. And as soon as Pharaoh's hardships are taken away, he forgets about the Lord until the next plague comes. This is a good example of a warped view of faith. So I want you guys to ask yourself, does following God and having faith in God mean that everything in our life will go well? Does it mean that we'll have lots of money? Does it mean that we'll always be happy? Does it mean that God will always take away our suffering here on earth? We know that God does not promise us happiness and money and prosperity here on earth, but what does God promise us? Does he promise to be there with us through every hardship? Does he promise us joy and delight in him? Does he promise comfort and relationship, real relationship? So what does Pharaoh want from God? How does Pharaoh have a warped view of who God is and how faith in God works? Chapter 10, A Plague of Locusts Then the Lord said to Moses, Return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. I have made him and his officials stubborn, so I can display my miraculous signs among them. I've also done it so you can tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them, and so you will know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse, watch out, for tomorrow I will bring a swarm of locusts on your country. They will cover the land so that you won't be able to see the ground. They will devour what little is left of your crops after the hailstorm, including all the trees growing in the fields. They will overrun your palaces and the homes of your officials and all the houses in Egypt. Never in the history of Egypt have your ancestors seen a plague like this one. And with that, Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials now came to Pharaoh and appealed to him, How long will you let this man hold us hostage? Let the men go worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. All right, 
He told them, Go and worship the Lord your God, but who exactly will be going with you? Moses replied, We will all go, young and old, our sons and daughters, and our flocks and herds. We must all join together in celebrating a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh retorted, The Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. Never. Only the men may go and worship the Lord, since that is what you requested. And Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. Then the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the land of Egypt to bring the locusts. Let them cover the land and devour every plant that survived the hailstorm. So Moses raised his staff over Egypt, and the Lord caused an east wind to blow over the land all the day and through the night. When morning arrived, the east wind had brought the locusts, and the locusts swarmed over the whole land of Egypt, settling in dense swarms from one end of the country to the other. It was the worst locust plague in Egyptian history, and there has never been another one like it. For the locusts covered the whole country and darkened the land. They devoured every plant in the fields and all the fruit on the trees that had survived the hailstorm. Not a single leaf was left on the trees and plants throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you, he confessed. Forgive my sin just this once and plead with the Lord your God to take away this death from me. So Moses left Pharaoh's court and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord responded by shifting the wind, and the strong west wind blew the locusts into the Red Sea. Not a single locust remained in all of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again, so he refused to let the people go. A Plague of Darkness Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand toward heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick You can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all that time, the people could not see each other, and no one moved, but there was light as usual where the people of Israel lived. Finally, Pharaoh called for Moses. Go and worship the Lord, he said, but leave your flocks and herds here. You may even take your little ones with you. Pause and ask yourself, is Pharaoh actually following what the Lord has commanded, or is he still trying to get his way? Verse 25. No, Moses said, you must provide us with animals for sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord our God. All our livestock must go with us too. Not a hoof can be left behind. We must choose our sacrifices for the Lord our God from among these animals, and we won't know how we are to worship the Lord until we get there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart once more, and he would not let them go. Get out of here, Pharaoh shouted at Moses. I'm warning you, never come back to see me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Very well. Moses replied, I will never see your face again. So that's the end of chapter 10, and we're leaving it on another cliffhanger because there is one more plague left, and it is the darkest plague yet. We have seen a lot of destruction. We have seen a lot of heartbreak throughout 
these chapters. And it can be hard to read. And you might ask yourself, why is the Lord doing this? If you're asking yourself that, though, go back to the scriptures and listen to what the Lord says. He explains why he's doing this. He explains why he needs to show his power to the land of Egypt. You know, how is this all connected to the covenant God made so long ago with Abraham? Do we think that God will be able to rescue his people, the Israelites, from slavery into the promised land? So we will pick up next time with Exodus 11 and see this final plague and see how God rescues his people. Thank you so much again for listening. I know that God speaks through his word. And so I hope that you get something out of this, not from me, but from God and from his word. If you would like to reach out or have any suggestions for the show, my email address is in the show notes, biblebeginningtoend at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out and share this with people who might be interested in listening or just having a different way to interact with the word of God. So thank you for listening, and I will talk to you in the next one. Hello and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. I'm so glad you're joining me again today as we take a look at Exodus 11 to 15. Let's remind ourselves where we left off last time. We were right in the middle of the famous plagues on Egypt. Moses has been trying time and time again to appeal to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will let God's people go and worship him. But every time, Pharaoh has either said, no, you may not go, or he says he's going to let them go and then changes his mind. We left on a cliffhanger last time with Pharaoh telling Moses, I'm warning you never come back to see me again. The day you see my face, you will die. And then Moses replying, very well, I will never see your face again. Do we think that Moses and Pharaoh will come face to face again? I said there was one more plague left in this story, and that's where we will be picking up today with Exodus 11, death for Egypt's firstborn. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh and the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force you all to leave. Tell all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now the Lord had caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the people of Israel. And Moses was considered a very great man in the land of Egypt, respected by Pharaoh's officials and the Egyptian people alike. Moses had announced to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, At midnight tonight I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has ever heard before 
or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites, it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. All the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall to the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg. Hurry and take all your followers with you. Only then will I go. Then burning with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. Now the Lord had told Moses earlier, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but then I will do even more mighty miracles in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed these miracles in Pharaoh's presence, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he wouldn't let the Israelites leave the country. So pause there at the end of chapter 11. It was a very short chapter, but it had a lot in it. What are your initial thoughts about this final plague? Do you think it is extreme, or do you think it's justified? What do you think, and look back in the text and the things we read last time, what do you think has caused Pharaoh to be so against Moses and God's people? And as you reflect on Pharaoh and what has caused him to become so harsh, what do you see as his fatal flaw? What do you see as the one sin that has overwhelmed Pharaoh's life? Exodus 12, the first Passover. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the fourteenth day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the house where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember each year from generation to generation you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is the law for all time. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Anyone who eats bread made with yeast during the seven days of the festival will be cut off from the community of Israel. On the first day of the festival and again on the seventh day, all the people must observe an official day for holy assembly. No work of any kind may be done on these days except in the preparation of food. Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. This festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this day from generation to generation. The bread you eat must be made without yeast from the evening of the fourteenth day of the first month until the evening of the twenty-first day of that month. During those seven days, there must be no trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made with yeast during this week will be cut off from the community of Israel. These regulations apply both to the foreigners living among you and to the native-born Israelites. During these days, you must not eat anything made with yeast. Wherever you live, eat only bread made without yeast. So pause here and reflect on these regulations and commandments God is giving to the Israelites. If you know the full context of the scriptures we're reading, you know that in the Old Testament, there are a lot of laws. A lot of laws that the Israelites must follow to the letter. So I want you to reflect here on why you think God is giving the Israelites these laws. If you know anything about the scriptures, you know what's coming in the New Testament. So I want you to consider these laws in the context of the Old Testament only. And also consider these laws in the context of the New Testament after Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. How does Jesus' sacrifice that's coming in the New Testament retroactively affect these laws? I also want you to reflect on why you think God is giving them these specific laws right now. Why do you think they have to put blood on their doorpost? Why do you think they can't eat bread made with yeast? What is the significance of yeast? And finally, why do you think that the animals that they're sacrificing must be without blemish? Verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the doorframe of your houses, and no one may go out through the door until morning, for the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, 
the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. Remember, these instructions are permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, What does the ceremony mean? And you will reply, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of Israel and Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. So pause here before we move on and reflect on this plague, this final plague, because it might be hard to process. I want you to think back to earlier in Exodus, in the beginning of Moses' story. How did he end up in Pharaoh's home? What was the decree that Pharaoh put out in the land of Egypt? I want you to compare that story with this final plague. You can take some time to do some thinking and praying on this section. As we close the chapter on these plagues, we will see how Pharaoh is going to react. But it might be good to take some time to reflect on what's happened and make some predictions on what you think is going to happen next. Is Pharaoh finally going to change his mind? The next section is Israel's exodus from Egypt. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship your Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you said and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible, for they thought, we will all die. So pause there real quick and reflect on Pharaoh's reaction. What did it take to finally soften Pharaoh's heart and let God's people go? Why do you think Pharaoh couldn't come to this conclusion earlier? And how in this moment is Pharaoh finally recognizing God's power? Verse 34. The Israelites took their bread dough before yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading boards in their cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. That night, the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Sakoth. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. 
A rabble of non-Israelites went with them, along with great flocks and herds of livestock. For bread they baked flat cakes from the dough without yeast they had brought from Egypt. It was made without yeast because the people were driven out of Egypt in such a hurry that they had no time to prepare the bread or other food. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for four hundred and thirty years. In fact, it was on the last day of the four hundred and thirtieth year that all the Lord's forces left the land. On this night the Lord kept his promise to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. So this night belongs to him, and it must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites from generation to generation. So pause and reflect on the amount of time that's passed. 430 years. Who started this covenant with God? Abraham way back in Genesis. So reflect on the amount of people who have lived through this time and died without seeing the promise fulfilled here on earth. What does this teach us about waiting and patience and persistence? The next section is instructions for the Passover. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the instructions for the festival of Passover. No outsiders are allowed to eat the Passover meal, but any slave who has been purchased may eat it if he has been circumcised. Temporary residents and hired servants may not eat it. Each Passover lamb must be eaten in one house. Do not carry any of its meat outside and do not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate this Passover festival. If there are foreigners living among you who want to celebrate the Lord's Passover, let all their males be circumcised. Only then may they celebrate the Passover with you like any native-born Israelite. But no uncircumcised male may ever eat the Passover meal. This instruction applies to everyone, whether a native-born Israelite or a foreigner living among you. So all the people of Israel followed all the Lord's commands to Moses and Aaron. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt like an army. So that's the end of chapter 12, and here we go into Exodus 13, Dedication of the Firstborn. Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. So Moses said to the people, This is a day to remember forever, the day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember, eat no food containing yeast. On this day, in early spring, in the month of Abib, you have been set free. You must celebrate this event in this month each year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, he swore to your ancestors that he would give you this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Then on the seventh day celebrate a feast to the Lord. Eat bread without yeast during those seven days. In fact, there must be no yeast bread or any yeast at all found within the borders of your land during this time. 
On the seventh day, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord. With a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. So observe the decree of this festival at the appointed time each year. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you and to your ancestors. When he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or young goat in its place, but if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. And in the future, your children will ask, What does all this mean? Then you will tell them, With the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. This is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. This ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. It is a reminder that the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. So pause here and reflect on these rituals. Why is God giving the Israelites these rituals to follow? What is the importance of rituals? There were rituals in the past like circumcision, and you can compare these new rituals to those and see how they are similar and how they are different and ask yourself why God might require this of his people. The next section is Israel's Wilderness Detour. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, If the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus, the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. So pause here, and as we read through the story of the Israelites finally leaving Egypt, Listen to the imagery and description and put yourself in their shoes. How might you feel if God has finally delivered you from slavery, but now you have to wander through the wilderness? Now you have to go in this roundabout way. Would you trust God or question him? How do you think the Israelites will react and how do you think this will turn out for the Israelites? Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. The Israelites left Sakath and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them. 
He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. So pause here at the end of chapter 13 and put yourself again in the Israelites' shoes. You're wandering through the wilderness, but you look up and see the pillar of clouds. You look up and see the pillar of fire. And you know that God is with you. How do you feel? Does that change anything? What are some things in your life now that you look at as reminders that God is with you? That God goes before you? When the Israelites see these pillars, do they feel secure? Do they feel safe? How does knowing that God is with you help you feel safe? Exodus 14. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. So pause here and make a prediction. What do you think will happen when the Egyptians chase after the Israelites? The next section is, The Egyptians Pursue Israel. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all those Israelite slaves get away? They asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the force in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Pihahirath, across from Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. So pause here and think about what the Israelites just said to Moses. Are they trusting in the Lord? Or are they trusting in people and themselves? How do the Israelites feel right now? This will become a theme and a pattern among the Israelites. 
where they'll become frustrated and complain to Moses. So make note when you see this of what's going on and why they're reacting this way. And then we're about to hear Moses' response. So as you're listening to Moses' response, I want you to compare what he says with what the Israelites have just said. When we read this, ask yourself, who is Moses putting his trust in? Verse 13. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. The next section is escape through the red See, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the waters so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God who had been leading the people of Israel moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land, so the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. So I want you to take a moment here to pause and visualize what's going on. The Israelites are walking through the sea on dry ground. Walls of water are shooting up on either side of them. And they are walking through the sea. How is this displaying God's power? How do you think the Israelites feel and how do you think the Egyptians will react? Verse 23. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here! Away from these Israelites! The Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt! When the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place. 
the Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore, When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So at the end of chapter 14, pause here and ask yourself, how have the Israelites changed? In whom are they putting their faith? And why has this change occurred? So we're about to start Exodus 15, a song of deliverance. I'm going to read this in its entirety because it's one complete song of praise to the Lord. And so I think it's best read without stopping. So I'm going to ask you some questions before we get started to really be thinking about as we're reading through it. First, I want you to think about the word deliverance. What does the word deliverance mean to you? And then look it up in the dictionary and see what the actual definition is and how that definition fits with what's happened to the Israelites. Think about where the Israelites have been. Their slavery. The horrors and violence they experienced under Pharaoh. And then think about where they are now. As we read through this, if you can, unless you're in your car or walking or something like that, if you can, close your eyes while we're listening to this song of deliverance. Think about where these words are coming from. Reflect on what the Israelites are saying to the Lord. Why are they saying these things? And what is the state of their hearts as they are singing to the Lord? So here we go, a song of deliverance. This is happening just after the Lord has rescued them from the Egyptians. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters gushed over them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. 
Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. You unleash your blazing fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your breath, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood straight like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I will flash my sword. My powerful hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? You raised your right hand and the earth swallowed our enemies. With your unfailing love, you led the people you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to your sacred home. The people hear and tremble. Anguish grips those who live in Philistia. The leaders of Edom are terrified. The nobles of Moab tremble. All who live in Canaan melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. The power of your arm makes them lifeless as stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, reserved for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers rushed into the sea, the Lord brought the water crashing down on them. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women as they played their tambourine and danced. And Miriam sang this song, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. So pause here and take time to reflect on these words. Reflect on the metaphors and similes used and the words that the Israelites used to describe God. Who is the focus of this song? Whose power is on display? When you're listening to this song, how do you think the Israelites feel? Are the words in this song more significant now that you know the history behind them? Our final section is bitter water at Marah. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. Pause here and reflect on what that just said about the Israelites. It said, then the people complained and turned against Moses. 
So what has happened between this song of praise and now for the Israelites to already be turning against Moses? Are the Israelites able to praise God even amid struggle? Or are we only seeing them praise God when God delivers them from suffering? How can you apply that to your own life and what does that tell us about the Israelites? And then the fact that God stays faithful to them, what does that tell us about God? Verse 25, so Moses cried out to the Lord for help and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water and this made the water good to drink. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decrees as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found twelve springs and seventy palm trees. They camped there beside the water. So that's the end of chapter 15 and the end of the section we're reading today. As we finish up, we're closing the chapter on the Israelites in Egypt. God has finally delivered them from slavery. So you can begin thinking and making predictions about what's going to happen to them next. How is God going to get them into the promised land? Do you think it will be an easy path or a difficult path? We will find out as we keep reading through Exodus. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, if you want to reach out to the show, I do have an email address, biblebeginningtoend at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out and let me know what you think of the show or if you have any suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and I hope that God was able to speak through his word to you today. And I will talk to you in the next one.